You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania Manania. You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania Manania. From the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, this is the A Copper and a Yarn podcast. Stan Grant, welcome to A Cuppa and a Yarn. Good, Michelle. Good to be here. Now, I've got to start, as we always do. Yeah. Who's your mob? Uh, my dad's Wiradjuri. Um, I always consider myself Wiradjuri. But my mum's Gamilaroi, and I'm, you know, deeply connected there. And I also have connections to La Perouse in the south coast through the Foster family, which is a big family there. Um, and my great-grandfather was a Foster. He was originally from... Uh, from around La Perouse, and this is going back to the middle of the 1800s, when he was a little boy, they rounded up all the blackfellas who were living around um, Circular Quay. They were living in the boat shed at Circular Quay, and um, they wanted to get rid of them. So they rounded them up and sent them out west, and he then lived on a mission out near Darlington Point, and then married one of the Nadens, a Wiradjuri woman, and had my great-grandmother. So I've connected to South Coast and La Perouse with the Foster family, and then um, Gamilaroi through my mum and Wiradjuri through my dad and, you know, really, really deeply connected to Wiradjuri country. It's a massive, massive family. Mm. And you were born in Griffith, is that right? Yeah, Griffith in 1963. Um, we moved around a lot, you know. Griffith was always a sort of spiritual home, I think, in a sense. You know, there was a uh, mission there, Three Ways Reserve on the outskirts of town. That was always where we'd sort of come back to all the time. and. Um, you know, I had a very, very big family, but we moved around a lot. You know, I was born in Griffith, my sister was born in Gilgandra, my brother was born in Ningen, another brother was born in Merriwar, and you know, dad was a sawmiller, it was a pretty itinerant lifestyle, so we sounds just like, moved. Yeah, sounds like my family. That's yeah, yeah, we moved. I mean, it, it, was, it had good and bad, you know. It, it meant that um, I was always surrounded by family, you know, because wherever we were, there were big family. mobs, you know. Yeah. And we were always travelling with lots of you know, my grandfather and my uncles and aunties and cousins and we were all just travelling around together. So we'd pitch up to places and we'd stay there for a while and we'd move on. But what it, what it meant was that I didn't really go to school till I was about 14 because um, you know, I started school but I'd leave and stop and start and I'd go for a couple of weeks and then we'd move and I'd miss out school for a few months and I'd pick it up somewhere else and I'd do a few more weeks or a couple of months and then we'd move again so I, by the time I was into high school I think I'd been to about 14 different schools so I had no continuity of education but I had a fantastic life education, life education mm. and, and a fantastic experience of growing up primarily on my own country and, and amongst my own people. So with that, and certainly at that time, and I mean, you know, you, yeah. you're not an old fellow, whatever, what was the situation with uh, school authorities sort of saying, or, or didn't they care if a, if a young Aboriginal boy well, wasn't going we, to school? Well, I was never around long enough to know what they thought, <laughs> to be honest. Um, <laughs> or they, 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 you were gone too fast for them I, to I, catch I, up? I do know the welfare uh, officers would come around, you know, occasionally when we were at school. Mm. And I have clear memories of being called out of class and, you know, taken up to the principal's office and interrogated by welfare officers, asking questions about my family and what we had for dinner the night before and checking my ears and, you know, all this sort of stuff and check my lunchbox if I had food, you know, to eat. I clearly remember that and I clearly remember a real sense of dread 
about the threat of welfare officers coming and taking you because it, it had happened in other you know, parts of my extended family and um, my mother was always warning us about that and some of her brothers and sisters were taken away to the homes um, particularly because her mother was white and her father was Aboriginal so the kids who were lighter skin were taken away and um, so I was, I was very aware of that and I think it was part of my mother and father's uh, motivation really in continuing to move was to avoid the clutches of authorities and I know my dad really really rebelled against the idea of having government control in our lives um, you know he, he didn't he'd seen what had happened in his own family and he wasn't going to have that happen to us so we sort of stayed one step ahead I think moving around so much I do remember though when I got to high school and I was about um, just turning 15 there were a group of us Aboriginal kids, some of my cousins and friends, and we were caught up to the principal's office and he said, well, you're about to get to the age when you're no longer legally required to come to school, so it's better that you leave. And his, his words to which, I, which I've never forgotten were, you will amount to nothing, so there's no point coming here. How old were you? 15, just wow. turning 15, which was the age at which you no longer legally had to attend school. So they wanted us out of there. Luckily, my dad got a job in Canberra and we moved again and uh, and that was a bit of a turning point because it um, I sort of uh, went from being in a school um, where a lot of other Aboriginal kids to just me and my sister being the only ones which was tough in some respects and in others it gave me a bit of cover I was able to sort of duck my head down and slide through you know the last few years of school without getting a lot of crap from a lot of the teachers, they didn't care what I did, but they weren't actively trying to impede me like it was in other, in other schools. So that was a bit of a, a critical moment for me. So with that move to Canberra, you had a, a, a sort of Apache educative yeah. start yeah. until around the age of 14. Yeah. So how did, you, how did you make up for that? Or you just, you, you just kept running? Because it seems like you, you know, I mean, you finished school. And well, because I was really smart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, 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 and you just went. You know, I'm not, not, I'm, and we and we should say this. You know, our, our people need to know how and smart we, we are. And we need to say you it. You know, yeah. I, I was smarter than everybody else. I was always smarter than everybody else. I read just because I wasn't going to school didn't mean I wasn't reading, and I was reading voraciously from the age. Mum says I could read from the age of three. I was reading before I ever went to school. When I was eight or nine years old, mum would bring home any books she found. We always got stuff from the second-hand clothes stores, you know, St. Vincent de Paul and Smith family and stuff. And so whenever we got clothes, there were usually books thrown away in, you know, book bins and things. And she'd bring home books. You know, you'd get them for whatever cost and just bring them home. And um, and uh, meant that from an early age, I was exposed to a whole range of things. Like I was reading... Ernest Hemingway and, and Steinbeck, um, you know, Mark Twain. I was reading Greek mythology. Mm. I remember clearly getting for my about ninth or tenth birthday um, a book on Greek myths. And, uh, you know, I was fascinated with these things, fascinated by the world, and I, I read and read and read, and I, I watched the news all the time. I was really actively engaged. So when we got to settle down in one place, um, it wasn't hard to catch up. There were big gaps in my education. The things that needed continuity of education were really difficult, like mm. maths and 
you know, and then science-based subjects that required maths because maths is an iterative process, you know. You, you work through the stages of learning and mm. if you miss those fundamentals, it's really difficult to catch up. But I asked mum and dad to get me a tutor um, who came a couple of no- nights a week and he tutored me in maths so that I would get through school and, you know, I didn't want to be... You know, I didn't want other people to finish ahead of me um, in school if, if I knew I was smarter than that. So I never really had a problem, you know, once I got there and put my head down. And there, there were things that I could do um, that came really naturally to me. And uh, being able to write, being able to think clearly, being able to absorb lots of information and being able to recall lots of information, to sit down and do exams and have, you know, really strong recall and memory. They were second nature to me. So it really wasn't hard. Mm. How different then was Canberra to the life, apart from the obvious, the life that you'd left behind? Because you were, as you said, mm. in your travels, mob to mob to yeah, mob, yeah. being static. Well, is I mean, it was a good, critical time because, uh, you know, the, the sort of political movement had really ratcheted up during the early 1970s and post tent embassy and stuff. Mm. After the 67 referendum and then the embassy in 72 and um, you know it's a 77 78 okay. by the time I'm turning up there um, and these things are really strong there's a, there's a department of aboriginal affairs there are aboriginal people going to universities um, there were ideas that we were being exposed to and many members of my family were doing that and when we moved suddenly a whole lot of other mob moved over as well um, so we were then you know surrounded by by families so um no, it was, there was quite a thriving community and, and it, it made me aware that there was a world bigger than my own and, uh, and that I could have access to that world and that there were Aboriginal people who were beating a path that I could follow. So it was, um, it was a good experience, really. So some of those things that you knew about yourself recall, thinking yeah, clearly, yeah, yeah. writing, etc. Where did that start to transition throughout your teenage years into um, ultimately, you know, becoming well, a journalist? It was reading, you know. It was reading. It was just reading. Mm. Um, then being exposed in my teens to a lot of uh, black writers. Mm-hmm. Um, when Kevin Gilbert, who was related to me, actually, my dad's side, um, who'd written really significant books like, you know, Because a White Man Will Never Do It, um, you know, and, and then opening up to black American writers like James Baldwin, um, who had a critical sort of influence on me once I'd sort of stumbled across books like Go Tell It on the Mountain and, you know, this, this when I saw black people writing about stories that in some way reflected my own. A very different country, different experience, but in some ways they connected and they reflected part of my own world. And so that really sort of inspired me as well. And it was that love of reading and, and a natural gift for writing. I'd never found writing a difficult thing. In fact, I find it a, a really life-affirming thing. And my mother used to um, write stories all the time. She'd write poetry, she'd write short stories. Just, you know, someone who barely went to high school. Um, but she would sit and write poetry. She would sit and write short stories. She'd tell us stories all the time. We're great storytellers, you know. My, my dad's grandfather, my great-grandfather, um, 
he was known as the storyteller. He lived uh, many different places. One of the places he lived was at Bolgandramine Mission in Peak Hill. And uh, there's, a, there's a list of everyone who lived on the mission. And um, it come, came to him and it said, Bill Grant, in brackets, the storyteller. That was his job. Mm-hmm. He told stories. So that's in my DNA, to tell stories, to write. It's, it's as easy for me as breathing. It's just not difficult at all. So across those years, uh, the teen years, with not having issue with um, making up any of that Western type of education, how was it tracking along at home? I mean, you've got quite a few siblings. You yeah, know, yeah. Any, any little, any memories you care to share about um, brothers and sisters? Anything funny or? Oh, well, our life was hilarious. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, our, our entire life was, you know, we were like, you know, like the hillbillies, really. Yeah. You know, we were just moving around and so many funny stories. You know, my, my grandfather was living with us and um, he was a really, really funny man. And, you know, you'd hear him, he'd, he'd, he'd go out every, every um, week, he'd wait for his pension, you know. So he'd sit around and he'd be sitting out on the front step waiting for the postman to come. If the postman was running late, he'd always say to me, you get on your bike and you go around and see if you can find this postman and get the check off him. I need to get down to the bank, you know, cash his check. And uh, so I'd be pedalling around trying to find the, uh, the postman. And if the check was ever late, he'd, he'd march down the street go into the, into the post office and demand to know where his cheque was, you know? <laughs> and and if, if they didn't have it, he'd go, well, it's all right for you. Your white guts are full. What about yeah. me? What about the old black fella? What do I do, you know? So he'd always be like this. When the pension cheque did come, he'd always take me down. We'd get a, um, he'd buy me an ice cream. Mm. Then he'd go off to the pub and blow the lot, you know? Mm. And then I'd, I'd wait up for him at night. I'd be, I'd be waking, waiting, like waiting there for him. And um, you'd hear him coming and he'd, stumble in and smack we lived in this sort of tin house you know he'd stumble against the wall and you'd hear this crash and bang and he'd be singing at the top of his voice usually you know that song please release me please oh, release me let, let me, go. me go yeah and so we <laughs> singing that night i'd know that pa was home i'd go out and i'd i'd pick him up and any money that he'd scattered all over the ground i'd pick up and i'd, I'd hold it for him I'd wait a couple of days you know and he He'd come out and wonder where his money was, and I'd have all this stashed away. Mm. Give to him after a couple of days when he'd sort of saved it up. So we're always doing stuff like that. And he, you know, he, he used to. Um, one of the jobs he used to have was um, he'd go around. We used to have the outside, the outside toilets. You know, the old pit. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you'd yeah. have a, you'd have a tin, you know, big drum in there, and and uh, he used to go around. And he'd have to collect it. Um, so you know, pick it up, throw it in the thing. One day he was out and he was he was mowing a lawn. And they didn't see where it was boarded over. He went straight through it and landed in the middle of this. Oh no! So he's there, and his and his cousin, my, my uncle's, is there, and had to sort of drag him out. And my, co- my uncle's a really skinny little bloke, and my grandfather's quite a solid bloke. And he's trying to drag him out of this. And my grandfather said to me, you know, he said, I was there, and I could smell this, and I was sinking ever further. And he said, I kept thinking to myself, well, you've worked in shit all your life. Now you're going <laughs> to die in shit. <laughs> He was, a, he was a very, very funny old man. But, you know, we always, um, you know, it, life was just, was just an adventure for us. You know, not being in one place at the one time. And when I think about my life now, you know, um, it was like something out of a Tom Sawyer book, Huckleberry Finn, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd be, um, I, I remember one, one year I 
broke my arm, I went off a bike going down a hill and got strung up on a barbed wire fence, had to cut all the barbed wire off, send me to the hospital to get it all attached, you know, detached and getting tetanus shots to get rid of the tet- potential tetanus from the barbed wire. Another time I, my uncle had these bees and he used to say to me, you know, don't go near the beehive. As soon as his back was turned, I went down the beehive, lifted it up and all the bees went up underneath my t-shirt. And all, they, all my dad and my uncle saw was me running around screaming at the top of my voice. They had to chase after me, get me down, rip the shirt off, and I was just stung all across my oh, stomach. Oh, stung. Taken to hospital, I had to have all the little stings taken out. And, you know, we, oh, it, it, it was just a crazy life of um, adventure and being on the road and being surrounded by your family. And, um, you know, our families are really funny people. They're always telling jokes and... You know, life is... Um, and it didn't take life too seriously. Mm, mm. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, yeah, it was good. Wonderful. I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who can who can talk with such fondness about uh, oh. having, uh, you know, 100 bees under your T-shirt. Oh, well, it was, just, it was just part of the adventure of life. And, yeah. um, and being poor, as we were, like really, really poor, and being black, I mean, there was always that tension between we knew we were different... Mm. We knew that people looked down on us, white people, you know, um, that we were never, the, you know, the equality and the other people enjoyed wasn't for us. But in our own life, in our own world, amongst our own mob, you know, we, we were just human beings and, we, you know, and we loved life and, and people were very funny and we had great adventures. You know? So you stayed in Canberra, you were in Canberra for a yeah. while, you finished school there. Um, what happened after that? Well, nothing really. I mean, I didn't have any ambition because um, no one in my family had ever done anything. In Serious? Life. Okay. Um, yeah, no one had ever been to university or anything like mm. that. That was mm. unthinkable. And uh, an uncle of mine had a job at the Institute of Aboriginal Studies. And um, this is... My life's been a sort of collection of really fortuitous moments, you know. And this was one of them, probably the most critical one. And my uncle was a janitor there. And uh, I got a job there delivering mail. So I would just go to the mail room, get all the internal mail, go around, drop it into people's offices. Then I'd go down to the library in the afternoon and I would be able to photocopy and, you know, whatever they needed doing. It's just a little menial job that... And that was all I aspired to. I didn't have any ambitions. It had always been in the back of my mind that I would like to be involved in news or journalism somehow, but I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea how to, uh, how to go about that. And it was through working there that I, I met other Aboriginal people who were older than me, but still young enough, you know. So they probably, I was 17, 18, they would have been in their late 20s, early 30s. And they were working there as research officers, um, studying at the university. And one of them in particular was Marcia Langton. And Marcia pulled me aside one day in the library and she pulled, called me over and she said, listen, what do you want to do with your life? Mm. And I, I had no idea, you know. And she said, you finished school, you're a smart kid, you've got more to offer than this, and you owe, you owe your parents more than this. They haven't sacrificed to give you the opportunities for you to waste it away. And she sort of really encouraged me to go to university and um, 
put me in contact with people who could facilitate that. And next thing you know, I applied, got into university, and a year, you know, next year went off and started studying. And that led really quickly to um, uh, journalism, journalism cadetship, into the press gallery as a political reporter, overseas as a foreign correspondent, and then I was away, you know. I mean, my life, things happened. You know, I, I went from... I went from being 17 and delivering mail with no ambition in life, with no idea what I wanted to do, to at the age of 27, fronting a national current affairs program for Channel 7. 10 years. That's just insane. That's insane. But that's how quickly things moved in my life once I found that path. And the path, I've always found this. It's not anything that I do, it's what my ancestors do for me. You know, it's the spirits of my ancestors that guide me and they point me in directions and they, they create connections and they put me in touch with people who are going to open doors to send me. I've been on a mission for them. They've been pushing me in the direction I need to go. And when I've followed that path, when I've listened to the voices of my ancestors, who I'm hearing all the time, when I do that, the right things happen. Mm. Not good things or the most successful things, but the right, right things. things happen. When I don't do that, it sets up a tension in my life that becomes unlivable. So I'm here because of my ancestors. They put me there. They put me on that path. They put me in that room with Marcia. They put me in that university. They put me on the road to journalism. I just had to follow the path and work hard. Mm. I just want to go back to Marcia Langton if I could. Yeah. You know, your ancestors putting you in the room with her. Do you think Marcia was... I mean, she was certainly part of that whole dynamic too yeah. because I, I actually do find that about her. She's pretty amazing with being on the money and helping set people in directions. Yeah, you know, she's got a great generosity of spirit and mm. she's a great mentor and, you know, she's a courageous woman. Mm. And, um, yeah, you know, maybe she saw something in me. Well, cl clearly she did. did yeah. and, and she thought that that was worth nurturing and encouraging. Um, but there's always bigger forces at play in your life, you know. Mm. Um, and for us, being from this country... That connects us so deeply to a sense of who we are and our purpose in life that it doesn't, it's no mystery to me that things happen in the way that they do. Um, these things come from being connected deeply to your sense of place and the sense of who you are and where you belong. And then our ancestors make it very easy for us after that. And I found that at every step, of, every step of the way in my life, that's mm. happened. We speak a lot about, uh, you know, particularly for people who are not living on country, yeah. who are living at home, how wonderful it always is and how yeah. solidifying it is when, yeah. when you do go home. So having spent a life, you know, as you were saying, yeah. the uh, Aboriginal version of Huckleberry Finn, yeah. Canberra, and then that 10 years and, you know, you're off and you're travelling yeah. all over the world. How did you find it was to retain that connection with who you are on a deep level when you're... Oh, it was never, never, never a problem. Um, How did you do that? 
I didn't even have to think about it. It mm. wasn't a process of doing anything. It was okay. just a process of being who I was. You know, no matter where I was in the world, I was always me. I was always the same kid who lived in those towns. Um, I was always Wiradjuri, Gamoroy, Darawal person. You know, that's that's what I am. Um, I, I, I that was that was never a tension. You know, and I lived overseas for 18 years. Um, lived everywhere and travelled more than 80 countries and no matter where I was I was me I was who I was and when I met other people you know they'd talk about that and I'd explain to them where I was from what my ancestry was what my connection is and that was that was part of the journey that was the journey I had to do to prepare me for the time when I would come back and um, again when I when I when, when I was away I would come back all the time spend time back out on country and reconnect and, and also get that that um, energy that we need from being on our own place that you can't get from anywhere yeah. else. Absolutely. And so I, um, you know, I was always being replenished by dipping back in and out, even though I was living away. And then eventually, you know, when I felt that I had to come home, the moment I got back, it opened up so many doors. Um, I helped launch National Indigenous Television for them. You know, the first broadcast I presented from Alice Springs on the launch of the, the network. Um, you know, I wrote Talking to My Country, which became a best-selling book. It led to the documentary on Adam Goods. I've written five books in the last four years. I'm working on another film. I'm writing a, a novel and another book right now. And uh, again, what I'd done outside had prepared me for that. Mm. And when I came back, when whatever spirits were there that were calling me back felt it was the right time to come back, it coincided with a critical time in Australia's political journey that allowed me to find a place in that and find a voice in that and to speak that voice for my own people, particularly graduate mm. people. Did you ever find um, along that journey, and then what, where are we now, 2020? Let's say perhaps not in the not in the last decade. Yeah. Okay. Where, especially when you were away, and even when you were here, uh, I know what your answer is going to be, but I've got to ask. Yeah. Pretty much, um, where you found that people looked at you differently but not in a good way because you were hereditary. Listen, white people don't know who we are. They've got no idea. Mm -hmm. They've got no idea. They don't even know how to begin to understand what it is to be Indigenous. And they can't help constantly telling us what's good for us and who we are and defining us. And they view us with scepticism. So one of the things that they find really difficult to deal with is the idea of success and being an Aboriginal person and being successful. Suddenly you become less Aboriginal to them. So they often say things to me like, oh, but you're different to the others or you're not like them. You know, not even realising that they don't even know who they are, who mm -hmm. are the them that they talk about. Mm. You know, they make these grand assumptions about us. So I went from being someone that they wanted to kick out of school because I was black to someone who was successful and was then told that you're not black like because enough. you're too successful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, white people have got no idea. 
So you're always grappling with that, that tension and that inherent racism that we have to navigate all the time because we are a minority. You know, we don't enjoy, you know, the benefits and the privileges of being a majority in this land. And the culture, the rules, they're set by white people mm. and we have to fit into those rules to survive. Mm. So how do we do that and create something for ourselves? Now, but I was always really inspired by, as I said before, great writers, great thinkers. I remember something James Baldwin once said. He said, you know, I've spent a lifetime watching white people and outsmarting them in order to survive. And that's what I did. I watched them and I outsmarted them. I saw the way they worked. I went into journalism. There were no Aboriginal people there. They were all white. I watched them and I thought, you're not, you're not smarter than me. You don't know more than me. You're not magical. Whiteness doesn't give you special powers. I'm going to be smarter than you. I'm going to work harder than you. I'm going to be better than you. And I was. And, and it opened the doors and I went around the world. And I'm still, to this day, refusing to allow them to define who I am. I'll do whatever I want to do. I will read whatever I want, I will write whatever I want, I will travel wherever I want, I will work wherever I want, and I will never allow them to define me or to limit me in any way. And that drives them mad. That drives white people insane that they can't control us. But that's what working hard and being successful, in inverted commas, in their eyes, gives you, in a sense, it gives you a ticket to ride. You know, you're in there, you've, you, you've paid your entrance fee, now you can run the game. Mm. That's what we've got to do. We've got to be smart enough to run the game and not allow them to tell us who we are. And not appease them either. And yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, harking, them. I'm harking to, and I know I'm skipping ahead yeah, to this yeah. year, um, uh, an opinion piece you actually wrote mm. this year uh, following the High Court decision on yes. the, the, the two... Well, the two well, you know, the High Court decision yeah. in the love case, yeah. as it's known. Yeah. The loves at Love and Tom's, yeah? It, it really involved a case of two Aboriginal men who ha were facing deportation for crimes they'd committed mm. here who were not Australian citizens but were Indigenous. And the High Court was asked to rule on whether they could be deported. And it was a landmark ruling because it, you know, it following huge. on from the, from the Mabo decision, it basically, again, tries to grapple with what is the extent of and limits of Aboriginal sovereignty. Mm. And that's, that's, what, that's what it's really about. Um, the dissenting opinions in the High Court couldn't get on board with the, with the, the majority because they saw it as too close to a recognition of Aboriginal sovereignty. Um, but what it's really saying is, and in this case, the plaintiffs won, the ruling was that they could not be deported because being indigenous to this land gives you a connection to it that is greater than citizenship. Um, and so it is. Yes, it should be greater than citizenship. This is our land. The imposition of British law, the imposition of white rule, of occupation and invasion does not remove the fact that this is our land. And so the courts have invented a new idea about belonging and belongers mm. and what legal rights in, that entails. And so I wrote an article for the City Morning Herald exploring that idea and saying, you know, when we say always was, always will be Aboriginal land and sovereignty never ceded, that means something. We're not just speaking out loud. Don't ask us to welcome you to country unless you also acknowledge that this is our country. Um, and so when I see white people resisting these ideas, saying things like, it's giving Aboriginal people rights that we don't have, I say, yes, it does. 
We do have rights that you don't have. You're not Indigenous. This is our land. You live here because you invaded it. You massacred people. You know, you live here because you stole it. Don't expect us to give up our rights because you stole the country from us. We're still here. And so the idea that we should appease whiteness to achieve the recognition of our rights is just abhorrent to me. Why on earth should we be pleading with the white power structures to recognize us, to put us, recognize us in the constitution on anything less than our terms? And as we've been reminded time and time again, no government in Australia of any persuasion has ever been prepared to recognize us in our terms and to allow us to fulfill our destiny in this land. No government has ever recognized the inherent sovereignty of Aboriginal people in this land. The courts have taken them right up to the line with Mabo and with the recent decision, but no government has grasped that idea. They are continually trying to thwart our ambitions, to assimilate us and to beat us into compromised positions that don't allow for the fulfilment of the extent of our self-determination and our rights in this country. And anything that appeases that white supremacy is a betrayal of who we are and our ancestors. And I really believe that. I think we need to hold absolutely firm and we need to make sure that any recognition of our rights does not in any way abrogate our responsibilities to our ancestors and does not in any way diminish our claims as the rightful owners of this land. Anything less is, is abhorrent to me. So you know, I'm really strong on this idea. We don't have to appease white people to allow white people to see the truthfulness and of, of our claim to our, own, to our rights in our own country. And I think white people can get on board with the idea. I think it's fine, you know? I think we can bring them to our side, but we don't bring them to our side by bending to them or bending to government. We need to be partners in Australia, not subjects. You're listening to A Cuppa and a Yarn. I'm speaking with uh, Stan Grant, and uh, we're talking about the recent 2020 High Court decision regarding two young Aboriginal men who uh, the court determined that basically, well, I said that day, Stan, when I had a look at the mm. initial um, ruling before yeah. the details were released, Aboriginality trumps citizenship. Yeah, it does. <laughs> that, that, that was how I and saw it. Of course it, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Justice Edelman fundamentally said. He said that, you know, writing in, for, for the majority, he said that Indigenous people have a connection and belong mm. to this land mm. in a way that cannot be legislated away. Mm. Cannot be legislated away. Beyond the reach of, of the law. So, yes, our, our rights, our place, our belonging is greater than the idea of citizenship. Um, and so it should be. And Australia should have no problem in incorporating that idea into what Australia is. If you resist that, what are you really saying to us? You know, you hear these people saying, oh, we shouldn't have race in the Constitution. Well, race has always been the Constitution. Australia was founded on the racist idea that this was terra nullius. And people you know, say, uh, 
we're all the same. We well, should we're not all be all the, the same. same. No, we're not, are we? And the only thing, it's not that they don't want race in the Constitution. They don't want our race in the Constitution. I mean, I'm not big on race talk because I, I think race is just, you know, race is a, is, is a myth in some respects, you know? We're not a race of people. We're a human race of people. When Aboriginal people are not a race of people. We are the people of this land. We are a people, an Indigenous peoples of this land. That's what we are. Um, it's a furphy, this. It's what, it's what the, the right wing of Australia uses constantly to muddy the waters. There's talk about race. We shouldn't have race in the Constitution. Well, race has always been in the Constitution. There's always been a race power in the Constitution that's been used against us. And now for them to talk about not putting race in, it isn't race they have a problem with, it's our race they have a problem with. And we need to be smart enough to understand their, their arguments and to rebut their arguments. But at the end of the day, the highest court in this land ruled in our favour. So, you know, live with it. And with that, with, you know, you were saying we've got to be smart enough, we have to be able to rebut it. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, lot of our people in our communities, etc. And um, I... Was it your father who's yeah, teaching dad. Wiradjuri? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, you were saying, um, I like in the piece that you wrote, that um, that decision that day was probably not going to matter a whole lot to him. I wouldn't it give it a second thought. Dad, dad doesn't need Australia to recognise him. Yeah. He doesn't need to be in the Australian Constitution. He's a Wiradjuri man. He knows where he stands. Mm. He speaks his language. He practices his culture. He lives on his country. Who needs to tell him who he is? Mm. He doesn't need Scott Morrison to come along and tell him who he is. He doesn't need Ken Wyatt to do anything for him. Mm. Just go away. Get out of his life. Let, mm. let, let us get on with our lives, you know. Our communities need to take charge of our communities. Mm. We need to say what it means to be a Wiradjuri person or a Gummeroid person, a Naranjari person, whatever that may be. Mm. We need to determine that, mm. not, the, not anyone else. Mm. You know, as far as Dad's concerned, get out of my life. Let me look after what is important to me. Let our people look after what's important to, to us. You know, there's a, there is a, a need to have government in our lives because they're the... You know, they, they are the people who provide the services. You know, they collect the taxation money. But they're about service delivery. They're about stream, you know, streamlining services to make sure that we get the best access to the resources that we deserve. Just like every other Australian, we deserve access to resources. Um, that's their job. Their job is not to tell us who we are. Their job is not to lecture us. Their job is not to get involved in our lives and our culture and in our bedrooms and tell us whether we keep our kids. And That's not their job. They take in tax money. They distribute tax money. They provide, they deliver services. That's what they do. Um, and so my dad, you know, he's not going to think about what the High Court does or what the Parliament does or whether we should have constitutional recognition or whatever. He's, he knows who he is. He doesn't need anyone else to tell him at all where he belongs and who he is. And that's true for a lot of our people. Mm. That's right. In community, working yeah, yeah, yeah. in community, working with community. We know who we are. You know, Ken Wyatt comes to Wiradjuri country. He's not the Minister for Indigenous Affairs. He's yes, just a blackfellow. And he's not a blackfellow from our country either. Yeah. So, you know, know your place, right? Yeah. He doesn't go there <laughs> and tell my father anything. I bet he doesn't. No, and he wouldn't want to. Yeah. So, you know, they are there to provide for us. We elect our governments to provide for us mm. as Australians. Anything other than that, we'll take care of. Now, you were mentioning uh, uh, a few minutes ago uh, books you've written. Yeah. One's in the offing. Can you talk about it? Uh, I don't want to talk about that. I, I don't, <laughs> no I don't spoilers? Want to give, I don't want to give too much away, but it's a, 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 a novel I've been thinking about for a long time, which deals with the really big questions of, 
of uh, of Australia and, and mm. race and belonging and history and you know it's, okay. it's uh, it encompasses everything from the beginning when the you, you know the first invasion um, to now um, and uh, yeah it's fun it's fun to write so I should have that done by the end of the year if I get my head down um, there's another book I'm writing uh, it's a writers on writers series and you choose a writer and you get to write about some of their work. So I've chosen Tom Keneally oh, nice. and I'm writing about the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith mm. and uh, looking at how he wrote that and what it tells us about Australia. And you know. So I'm working on that and then I'm... Uh, there's a, so I've got those two and then there's another book that I've got in the planning after that and there's a film that we're working on at the moment on Pemaway, um, a, a feature film. Nice. That we're pretty much advanced on we've almost locked off on the script uh, Philip Noyce the Australian director who did Rabbit Proof Fence mm-hmm. he and I are co-executive producers and um, so I'm overseeing you know the, with Philip and some of the other producers the scripts and, and we'll get into casting and start shooting that towards the end of the year so it's busy you know and, I, and I'm working um, I've got some other stuff planned in television I want to do and I'm also working for Charles Sturt University um you know, uh, vice chancellor's chair there, and I'm interested in working on issues of um, of belonging, what it is to belong. You know, uh, I'm really sort of interested in the philosophical ideas of of identity and belonging, and who we are, and how we express that, and how we build our own nations. You know, mm. what, what does it mean to be Wiradjuri and how do we build the idea of a Wiradjuri nation? Um, I'm interested in those things. And th- thankfully, through academic work with Charles Sturt, I can pursue some of those things. That's fantastic. Yeah. So are you, is it Charles Sturt Bathurst? No, no, Wagga? Wagga. Yeah. But I, I work across all of them, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a great university. They, they, they work with my dad on... Um, his uh, language course that's the only postgraduate mm. um, Indigenous language studies course at any university in Australia uh, postgraduate in um, diploma in Wiradjuri studies and my dad helped set that up and uh, he initially taught that he stepped back and he's got a whole lot of other people teaching it now and um, yeah and so there's you know they approached me some time ago to take on a role as a professor there and to work with, with them across issues of identity and belonging and nationhood. And as it's on Wiradjuri land, that's... Fantastic. That's, well, that's all I want to focus on, you know. I just... I, you know, People in Queensland and Northern Territory, Western Australia, that's their business, you know. They look after their... I wouldn't go up there and tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in my people, where I'm from, what matters to me. If we all take care of that, we'll be a lot healthier than running around telling everybody else what's good for them. So you've got a bit happening. Yeah, yeah, lots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I know you, you, your kids are all grown yeah, now yeah, and doing yeah. quite well. So w- what does the next year look like for you? The Steph? next year? Yeah. Um, well, I want to help set up this institute with Charles Sturt University, mm. um, which is sort of a think tank with them, which will look at issues of, of identity and belonging and nationhood. Um, a lot what? more writing. writing. Mm. Um, I write regularly for the Sydney Morning Herald. I write regularly for the ABC. Um, I want to, there's a, a series that the ABC is working with me on that I want to get locked in over the next year. 
Um, we want to advance on this Pemulwuy film, so we want to start shooting that over the next year. Um, and I should have two books published by this time next year as well. Just a couple of things, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they were, you know we're, we, we, we're here for a purpose, right? Yeah. And uh, we're not here to waste our time. I'm not here to sit around watching rubbish on television. Or you know, I'm here to do work. Mm. I'm here to do work that my ancestors want me to do. And I want to spend a lot more time in my own country too. So um, I'm looking at trying to spend at least 50% of my time back out on country um, to do all my writing and be connected to that. Mm. And then when I need to be in Sydney, I'll be in Sydney. So I'm in a sort of fortunate time in my life when we can have a place in Sydney and we can buy a place in the country and we can move between both and, um, and I, can, I can spend as much time out there as I possibly can. In your um, work with um, identity and belonging, um, would you possibly consider what that may mean for Aboriginal people who are not living on country? And I, I just speak as, you know, yeah, another yeah. person. I'm a long way from home, have been for quite some time. I'm not, I'm not really interested in what anything means for anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm just interested in the philosophical exploration of ideas. Okay. It's up to other people to, to take those ideas and to adapt them or throw them away. Or If it's useful, it's useful. If it's not, it's not. But I, I'm really at heart someone who likes to grapple with philosophical questions of life, you know? I read philosophy more than anything else. I've studied philosophy. It's what I've done my academic work in. And um, I'm really interested in the ideas of how we navigate a liberal democratic philosophical idea with our own ideas and our own connections and our own belonging. That's why the High Court decision was a fantastic one because it's a place where our our belonging on our terms finds expression within a liberal democratic legal system. Mm. I think that's a really interesting idea for, you know, to pursue where liberalism connects with our indigeneity and uh, you know liberalism is the handmaiden of racism and colonization but it's also a liberating idea of freedom and where, where do individual rights begin and end and where do community rights begin and end that negotiation that tension is what we need to grapple with in Australia if we're going to have a political voice that is meaningful as indigenous people so I'm really interested in just exploring those ideas. And if people can take from that, you know, then that's good. But I'm not really interested in saying this is what you should do and how people yeah, should act. Yeah, or yeah. It's up to other people to find their own journey. Yeah. But as a writer, part of that is to give people a story that can guide them in the same way that the great writers gave me stories that guided me. You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania, Manania. You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania, Manania.